0: honor to introduce today Professor uh, Betty Diamond. I'm glad she accepted to be with us today. Um, She received uh, an MD from Harvard Medical uh, School. She then performed uh, internal medicine at the Columbian Presbyterian Medical Center and she uh, got her postdoctoral fellowship in immunology uh, at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She's actually the director of the Institute of Molecular Medicine at the Fenstein Institute of Molecular Medical Research. She actually, her research uh, is mainly focused on lupus, on the pathogenicity of anti-double strand DNA antibodies in systemic lupus erythematosus. And uh, she received several recognition for her work in, in these years. Um, She received the Outstanding Investigator Award of the ACR in 2001. She then received uh, the Recognition Award from the National Association of the MD-PhD Programs in 2004 and uh, the Distinguished Fellow Award in 2019. Um, She's uh, the past president of the American Association of Immunologists. So welcome, Professor Betty Diamond. We are honored to have you here.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, and that CV just speaks to how old I am.
0: <laughs> so let's um, break the ice with uh, uh, a simple question. So, can you briefly tell us about your research?
1: So, I'm interested, as you said, in lupus, and we started out studying. Uh, anti-DNA antibodies and showing that somatic mutation can play a role in generating these from antimicrobial antibodies. And that led us to look at uh, the B cells that, uh, how B cells become activated to make anti-DNA antibodies. And we had the surprising observation that these antibodies cross-react with NMDA receptors. And that got us interested in um, looking at uh, the role antibodies, these antibodies in particular, might play in uh, neuropsychiatric lupus. And uh, these antibodies actually also cross-react with C1Q, which got us interested in the role of C1Q in immune homeostasis, because we all know that C1Q deficiency is the biggest risk factor for uh, a lupus. So, I mean, it sort of uh, has wandered as things have become interesting, Uh, but it's always been on lupus uh, and on sort of regulation of B cells in, in autoantibodies
0: in lupus. Thank you. So let's talk about your career and let's say your scientific life. So what about the decision you made? Uh, What's the most uh, strategic step or strategic decision that you have taken uh, in your career?
1: You know, I'm not sure that strategic is the right word, because I'm not sure I've been strategic about my career. And I think there are decisions that I could have made that might have been somewhat more conventional and have advanced my career more in along traditional lines. But I think what's driven my career is sort of fun and passion. And so uh, I've made a lot of decisions to move in directions that I'm not sure were strategic, but were... Um, but really altered my career. So I started my postdoc looking, it was the, the time when monoclonal antibodies first came out. So dinosaurs were walking the earth at that time. And it was looking at the specificity of FC receptors. And I just said, I want to study lupus. I don't want to keep studying this. And I think conventional wisdom would be you keep studying this because you've developed a niche and people know you for this and there's a clear path forward. And I moved on to study lupus. And uh, we were studying mice. And I sort of said, I don't want to keep studying mice. I want to study patients. And so we moved into studying patients. And again, the conventional wisdom is this is where people know you, you need to expand your visibility here and really become uh, the identified expert in this area. And the next thing was to move to clinical trials and get involved in doing clinical trials. And most people would have said, that's crazy. You know nothing about clinical trials, which is absolutely true at the time. But I, you know, sort of latched on to a good friend of mine, David Woffsey, who knew a lot about clinical trials, and I learned. And that's, these have all been things, that decisions that have really allowed me to pursue a goal of transforming clinical care for lupus patients. And that's what is exciting and that's what makes it fun to think about. And so I'm not sure they're strategic. Going into the brain wasn't exactly strategic either because I'm not a neuroscientist and I know nothing about the brain. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's, it's a willingness to keep learning. It's sort of a maybe sometimes foolish fearlessness but it's really following one's passions. And I guess what I really feel is that you do that until reality stops you. And at the point that people say, no, you can't go in that direction, then you retrench and you move back into the zones where they're going to allow you to be expert. But as long as, You can finance your laboratory and keep moving forward with exploring the areas you want to. Why? That's what you should do. You shouldn't set up sort of arbitrary fences around yourself based on a conventional approach to how science is done and that it's very reductionist and very focused and you don't move from area to area. It's fine to do that.
0: Oh, thank you. I mean, just a curiosity, when you were speaking, um, how much time did you dedicate to clinical care and how much time to bench research? And if this changed along your path?
1: So when I started my postdoc, I just did moonlighting clinically and for some extra money because my postdoc did not pay very well. And uh, then I started going one day, uh, one half day a week to clinic. And then I actually became head of rheumatology at Albert Einstein and then Columbia. And I would do a half day of clinical week and be rheumatology attending two months a year. And obviously, you know, there's sort of a half day of rounds in journal club and whatever. Uh, but I... I um, you know, do think when you start out, you really have to be able to establish your laboratory before you spend more time clinically.
0: So in essence, uh, you were speaking about how um, you can find a new uh, room to be an expert in or uh, something. And I want to, to to ask you a question that I found on that, that, that actually uh, the people of the audience here, the fellow of the audience here sent us so how could one with a different background continue his or career path in the field of immunology and how, could di- and how difficult it is to switch from a different field into immunology? So this is kind of connected.
1: I, I'm not sure there's an answer to that because you know, it really has to do with your success with papers and with grants And I think we all know that there's a certain arbitrariness in that. And to some extent, it depends on who's reading your paper and who's reading your grants. So I'm not sure that it is totally predictable. But I think you do good work and you stick with it as long as you can. You know, I mean, there are areas I I haven't succeeded in. So, you know, we've studied B cell biology and been funded there. And we've studied C1Q and been funded there and the brain and been funded there. But I really thought that one could look at exosomes from brain microvascular endothelial cells and determine whether there's a loss of blood-brain barrier integrity. And I thought, A non-invasive way to look for breaches in blood-brain barrier integrity would be very important, and one that that could be repeated over and over again. So you can draw blood over and over again. You're not doing gadolinium scans in sick lupus patients with renal disease over and over again. And I thought we had some really nifty preliminary data and some really nifty good ideas about it. And I didn't succeed with it. You know, the endothelial bio, uh, cell biologist just said that Betty Diamond is not an endothelial cell biologist. True enough. And so I think that you know you you keep trying. And sometimes you try and you wait a couple of years and you try again, and I'm ready to try with that again, having waited maybe eight years. And, you know, but I don't, I'm not sure that there's an answer. I think that the truth is if you're a good scientist in one area, chances are you have the capacity to be a good scientist in another area that it's a matter of critical thinking, it's a matter of a certain amount of creativity, it's a matter of mental flexibility, uh, and being able to alter your uh, hypotheses when you do an experiment or you gather data that suggests you're not right, or when you read a paper that way and you know information's very available you can go to meetings and you can learn a lot about what's current in a new field you know in a pretty accelerated way so i don't think you should have any fear of going into a new area that that interests you you know i for MD, phd students over 50% of MD-PhD students get their PhD in a different area than they did their PhD work in. And, you know, if you just keep doing the same work over and over again, you'll calcify pretty quickly. So, you know, you're, you're always doing new things, whether it's in, you know, what people would call the same area or a different area, I mean, my lab's gotten very involved in some metabolomic studies now. Is that the same or different? We all know now that activation states of cells are very much determined by metabolomics and determine the metabolomics of the cell. But is it, is it different? Well, I certainly had to go back and learn things that I had forgotten <laughs> a long time ago. On the other hand, I don't think it's a different field. It's the same field. It's just you know using a different set of analytes to, pr- to understand and a different set
0: of reagents to perturb the system. And you are also saying that um, before to do to clinic for an MD-PhD or for an MD anyway, before to go to the clinic, it's uh, very important to set up the, the research that you are doing the research field or your lab. So, along uh, uh, this line, uh, I have a question here uh, about what's your advice for people who want to focus on translational research in the field of immunology. So,
1: I think that there are a couple things that are critical. I think you need a advocate in this world. There are lots of smart, uh, hardworking people out there. And the ones who move forward do so by dint of their own hard work, but also because somebody's helping them. Somebody's mentioning their name to be a speaker at meetings. Somebody's suggesting they write a review article. Somebody's suggesting that somebody go work with them. And oftentimes that's your post. For me, it was my postdoctoral mentor, but it doesn't need to be. But you need to have some relationship where that person is invested in your success. And that's really important. And I think the other thing is much more mundane and much simpler, which is you need to have one day a week, maybe two days a week that are sacred, where you just don't do anything else (laughs) but your research. So that's... At the beginning of your research career, you don't agree to, you know, go to the meeting on what color to paint the walls of the new building on that day. You just say you're not available that day. And it's really hard to hang on to uninterrupted time. But if your days, I mean, I think the biggest, to me, the biggest change with COVID is that the days are endlessly chopped up that it used to be I still had at least half days of uninterrupted thinking, working, reading, writing. And now you have a half hour and there's another Zoom call, right? And I think we're all living in that world now. But I think you really need to preserve some time that is for you to read, think, write, talk to people about your research focus and not do extraneous activities.
0: One of the questions was, uh, can you tell us something about your personal experience concerning the role of female MD working in research? What are the pros and cons uh, of being a woman leader in your field?
1: Well, since we don't have much choice about whether we're male or female or you know, I'm not sure the pros and cons are are worth listing. I think we all know that the cons are greater than the pros. I think that we know that for women, and we know that for minority scientists, and uh, there's a degree to which that's true for immigrant scientists as well. And in this world we live in now, we don't really need to you know sort of convince people that that's true though an immigrant minority female is a vice president elect in my country so that's pretty wonderful but you know i think that what i did maybe 10 12 years ago was i sort of decided to myself and i you know I, i've experienced what everybody else has experienced in these situations. There are many situations where a woman is invisible. You say something and then, you know, two minutes later, a man says the same thing and everybody is, you know, gung-ho with that when the guy said it and sort of didn't hear it when you said it. Uh, Or you're paid less, which never feels good, but You know, I'm not sure. I think in many European countries, pay is much more regulated than it is in the United States, where it's very up to one's chairman's discretion. But I actually formed a group of women scientists. And I was part of a group of early career scientists when I started my career. And what these groups do is they're really empowering and they're really validating and they critique your work and they you know suggest to you papers you should read or things to think about so there's a lot of content scientifically but there's also validating your reality and just saying you know but it's not gonna hold me back (laughs) and uh that's I think really important. You know one of the things that was amazing to me is when we started working in neuropsychiatric lupus. We were really I think among the first if not the first to have a real mechanism of brain injury in neuropsychiatric lupus. And I was asked to speak to a lay group about the work we'd done. And I was just terrified because I thought, you know, they have lupus, they have kidney disease, skin disease, heart disease, on and on because of their lupus. And now I'm going to tell them, and you also have brain disease. I mean, really, (laughs) does anyone want to hear that? And I was amazed because I was just thronged by people afterwards who had had their reality validated. They knew they had brain disease from their lupus. They knew it wasn't just normal anxiety that was making them not be able to find words or remember how to navigate their way home. And nobody was listening to them. And I think that what these groups do is just give you sort of a support group and a group that validates you. And I would say in this woman's group, where I am now, we've doubled the amount of federal funding, grant funding we have since we started. I think just by reinforcing that you should do this and you can do this. And so a little bit, you know, there are institutional ways to address some of the inequities and some of the insults uh and some of the harassments but even at some level even more important are these extra institutional things where um you share uh experiences and encouragement with people in the same situation
0: okay well thank you (laughs) i'm meeting you all uh, this conversation was certainly inspiring, at least to me. Uh, I'd like to thank you for the discussion and for, and I appreciated your tips and your generous advice that you gave us. And so f- from all the eminents uh, and uh, I think from all the participants, I'd like to thank you for the discussion. That was really, really good. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you. It was fun to be with you. Bye.